Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Pawns. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Rickvilla and Caroline D'Arty Edwards. We are going to talk about something that is always ever present on the minds of people who are thinking about getting an MBA degree. And that is, is it worth it? And if it is worth it, how much is it worth? There is a new study out. It's called, Is Grad School Worth It? A Comprehensive Return on Investment Analysis. The primary author, Preston Cooper, is a research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. And he really dove into the data on the net economic value of nearly 14,000 graduate programs at over 1,400 universities. We looked at, obviously, the business schools in this study. And what's interesting about this is that he kind of defines the ROI of a graduate degree as the increase in lifetime earnings a a student can expect from that degree, minus the direct and indirect cost of attending graduate school. And he even subtracts out what you would likely earn if you only had your undergraduate degree. So he's discounting your total earnings on the basis of what you would have earned anyway if you didn't have the MBA, as well as the cost of getting it. And that would include tuition and fees as well as the opportunity cost. So what he found was kind of really surprising because he contends that the MBA overall has a negative return. Now, there are a whole bunch of graduate degrees with negative returns, And he also points out that it really is dependent on what school you go to. And it's probably dependent on a bunch of other things like your location, uh, what kind of career you have, and and a number of other factors that are going to impact these numbers. But ultimately, he basically concluded that the highest ROI from an MBA occurs at Wharton, where the return on investment median over a lifetime is over $3.2 million. And that's after doing the subtraction of the cost of getting the degree and the subtraction of what you would have earned anyway if you uh, went to, just didn't have your Wharton MBA. Maria, what do you think of this? Okay, so I mean, first of all, God bless this guy for what he's he's trying to do. He's looking at tens of thousands of different graduate programs. I don't even want to think about how many different data points he was looking at and trying to make sense of what is probably an incredibly messy data set. I do think that a lot of his, the conclusions though, that are, he sort of asserts them with a certain amount of, I don't know, confidence that I don't necessarily think they merit. Like, I did. But overall, I think there are some good points that he makes. So one of the things I liked about his methodology is that he looks at something called counterfactual earnings. And so the idea is that yeah, like a master's degree in engineering, you might make a lot of money, but if you got a bachelor's degree in engineering, you probably would have still made a very similar amount of money, perhaps a little bit less, but not dramatically less. And so similarly, I think with MBA programs, as as we have talked about before, if your career is strong enough that you get into a Stanford, a Harvard, a Wharton, a Booth, any of these, Kellogg, any of these, you were probably already on a career trajectory to have been making a lot of money anyway, for the most part. And so there are people who that I know who like, you know, and I think I've mentioned these people before, like some of the wealthiest people I know were people who went to elite colleges and then went into the finance industry and did really well and thought, oh my gosh, why am I even going to waste two years of my life on an MBA? 
And instead, they spent those two years getting more experience in finance, and now they're doing very well. So I agree with that aspect of the methodology, but there are certainly some some odd results here. And it's it's so funny when people try to estimate what is like the lifetime value. I mean, for for Wharton, I think he got something like three million. There was earlier, like a year ago, there was a, a pay scale study that I think John, you might have reported on, that was eight million. So. We're talking like this. We're not talking like a 10% delta here. Like this is a pretty dramatic, a pretty dramatic fluctuation. So I don't know that his numbers are necessarily correct for the MBA. I think there are also some, like his thing about the dentistry being the highest paid one there. I don't know. I was looking, I was like, let me see, what is this? What is this University of Colorado advanced dentistry program? And I think that it, it's like a two-year program or three-year program, but you already have to have a dentistry degree, which is a four-year degree on top of your bachelor's degree, if I'm not mistaken. So yes, technically it is a quote-unquote two-year master's, but you need a lot of education before that. And so it's not the same as comparing it with like a two-year master's in, you know, master's of fine arts or master's in you know, place, playwriting or acting or something. So <laughs> anyway, you know, I think I think some of the overall takeaways are are interesting. I think it's a little bit strange that given the messiness of the data set that he then tried to come up with such specific numbers to quantify his results, but they are what they are. And at least again, at least, you know, I would have looked at that data set and been like, nope, I would have noped out of there pretty quickly and not even tried. So good for him. (laughs) Yeah. Caroline, what's your take? Well, it's not surprising, right, that professional degrees have much stronger showing in an examination of return on investment than than master's degrees in the arts, for example, I think that is uh, not a not something that we would have uh, anticipated differently, right? So, but you know, as Maria said, and it's a bit like the ranking sometimes, right? I mean, you look at the list and and you roll your eyes because, I mean, at the end of the day, who is going to look at that list and say, oh, well, I'm going to turn down my offer to from Harvard Business School because. You know, it's it's a much lower in this uh, this list than some of the other schools. So, I, you know, that that's that suggests that they're that, that, that HBS is so far down the list um, to me undermines the credibility of the of the list. But, but you know, I, I think there is a useful message in that going to um, a strong program is going to have a better return on investment than going to uh, a program that it's not as high regarded and doesn't attract such a strong community of students and give you the benefits of a, of a, of a fantastic network post-MBA. I, you know, I think that's something that we all agree with and that, that, that does come through as one of the sort of lar- larger messages here. And, and then, I mean, something else that's important to keep in mind is that, you know, people aren't just going for master's degrees to make more money, right? And I think that's increasingly true, actually, of the people going off to to graduate school these days, um, and you know, including people going to business school. There's definitely a trend compared to sort of 10, 20 years ago, people wanting to you know improve their education so that they can have a positive impact on the world, even through going to business school, rather than just going to business school to earn a, a bigger salary. And so, you know, people have greater choices and that's much more difficult to quantify, right? I think that if you compared the career satisfaction of people who have graduated from some of these programs compared to people who haven't gone to master's degrees, I think the fact that, you know, coming out of a a lot of these graduate school programs, you have 
doors that open to you that otherwise would have stayed closed. And therefore, you're able to pursue something that you're much more passionate about, whether or not that generates a higher financial return. That's a very positive thing, right? And, you know, anecdotally, I, from my small sample of my network of people who I've seen who've gone to business school versus people who've gone into business because, you know, they've got a background in accounting or or finance um, from the undergraduate degree, you know, often they have, as Maria said, they've done incredibly well financially also, but they haven't been able to make the career switches that people who've gone to business school have been able to make. And, and that may have worked out very well for them, right? They may have chosen the right path and stayed in, in that along those lines. And, and um, you know, it's worked out very well. But I think having the option to, to switch careers and, and choose a different path is incredibly valuable. And that's not something that's so, so easy to quantify. Yeah, true. And in terms of weird results, you know, both of you mentioned this briefly, but didn't actually give the number. According to this analysis, a Harvard Business School MBA is actually worth less than a million dollars at $972,000. That compares to that Wharton degree, where the authors estimate the value at well over $3 million. Kellogg is at $3 million. Chicago Booth is at two point five. Columbia Business School at 2.6, MIT Sloan 2.6, and a little extra. There are MBAs from fairly prominent schools that are not necessarily in the top 25 that have negative returns. The author contends that the University of Texas in Dallas, if you get an MBA from there, you're going to have a negative return of $62,863. How's that for precision? Or if you get an MBA from Northeastern universities, the Moore McKim Business School, the deficit that you're going to experience will be $472,000, which is a, a pretty big negative number. <laughs> so, so, you know, while th- this is kind of interesting to look at the numbers and the data like rankings, you need to take this with a really big grain of salt. Stanford, uh, which is where Caroline's husband went, uh, is also surprisingly low, particularly because you just wouldn't imagine. I mean, coming out of school, Stanford MBAs tend to have some of the highest pay packages in the world. But this author contends that an MBA lifetime advantage from a Stanford MBA is only $2.1 million. Now, uh, Maria referred to a pay scale study that we had actually uh, paid for and sponsored at Poets and Quants. And uh, the pay scale study showed that the lifetime return on a Stanford MBA was 8.3, not 2.1. But of course, that number did not discount the lifetime earnings by the cost of getting the degree, uh, the opportunity cost of losing income for two years, nor the, uh, you know, the, the value that a person would have had uh, on the basis of just her undergraduate degree. So there are adjustments to the numbers that would explain some of the differences, but not all of them. What other weird results do you see in here, Maria? Oh, there were, there were several that jumped out at me. One that I thought was kind of funny was that Duke University for Business appeared twice. So their master's in business administration, you know, the, the, the earnings at age 45 were predicted to be 228,000, but the master's in international business from Duke University was 347. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if the master's in, quote unquote, master's in international business 
if that means like the like an MBA with international focus, or I don't know if that's their like the global executive MBA at, at, at Fuqua, which in that case, that might be like older senior executives who are coming. Like anyway, there's just so many, <laughs> like what I was like, wait a minute, Duke has a master's in business administration and listed separately as the master's in international business with a pretty dramatic difference in that, in that pay estimate. So I just, I'm not really sure the, the, I, I tried to understand the methodology for predicting the pay, the future pay estimates. And I really don't think that they are, that they are very sound. It looks to me like he just basically sort of slapped, like looked at what people were making immediately after business school and, and slapped a growth rate onto it. So for the Wharton number, for example, you know, I think he estimated that at graduation, it was something around 179,000. And then by age 45, that number went up to 287,000, which I, because I'm an MBA, I, I calculated the, <laughs> the, the um, compound annual growth rate. Uh, and that was about 3.2% of a growth rate per year, which doesn't, it just doesn't pass the, it doesn't pass the gut check test. It doesn't pass the smell test, right? Because oh. It, it it just I mean that makes sense if you if you never get a promotion, right? If we assume that the average of well this year doesn't count, but historically inflation in the U.S. has been roughly two percent a year. So he's saying that these people are doing you know better than the average worker in terms of cost of living increases or pay increases, but most people don't stay in the same job at the same level that they enter post MBA. So yeah, they might be making, you know, if they were to stay, let's say as a manager level at Bain, that might be their, <laughs> after after 15 years, that might be what they make, but they're not going to stay at that level, right? They're either going to get promoted to higher and higher levels or, well, they'll be kicked out. So it was this, it's this kind of odd, it doesn't really take into account. I can see like, perhaps if you're a dentist, which is the dentistry being the highest one, like, okay, you start off as a dentist and you have your own practice and maybe it grows a little from year to year to year. But in the business world, there are opportunities to really jump between manager level to director and then director to vice president or what have you. And so there's some, it, that is not a sort of 3% slope straight line for the most part. Yeah, that's, that's just, there's just no way that a Wharton MBA or an MBA from any elite school like that is going to have pay increases of, of only three point one percent a year uh, into their into the into their mid forties. It's just not possible, given uh, what the degree means, uh, and, and and given the increased responsibilities at work and promotions, and, and and these people are in organizations that are not bureaucratic and reward employees with two or 3% increases every year. The other thing uh, that's not adjusted for, of course, would be uh, equity awards and probably bonuses as well. I mean, he's really looking at base pay more than anything else because he has no database with which to extract the value of an equity award or even the value of a of a guaranteed bonus. Um, I mean, look at if you're on Wall Street and you're in investment banking, you know, your bonus often exceeds your salary. So, so there are a number of you know problems with the methodology and the calculations that that get in the way. What is kind of interesting though, overall, is that even though there, there's quirks in the data. Basically, what he does show is that if you go to a brand name MBA program that has a great reputation, 
uh, and is ranked highly and is highly selective, uh, you're going to, by and large, earn more than someone who goes to a second or third tier program. And that's pretty universal across the entire data set, no matter what industry a person enters. And it, and it goes to why I think, uh, Caroline, there is this obsession with getting into an NCI at London Business School and HSA Paris an IESE in Spain or Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, Columbia, uh, Northwestern, Chicago. It's, it's, you know, understandable, right? I mean, there is this obsession that all of you deal with because every time you get a client, what do they tell you? I want to go to Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. The vast majority of people that we work with are applying to the, the very top schools. I mean, I, I think, you know, whilst this exercise was, was interesting, to me, it's probably more useful to look at the the data on the class that's graduating and, you know, the salaries that they're getting, the employers that they're going to. I think that's more useful to help candidates understand, you know, what their options are going to be post-MBA um, because it seems that, you know, there's so many assumptions that are made in this is this data, as you said, you know, just looking at two years post-MBA and then extrapolating out how that evolves over time, it's impossible, right? Um, unfortunately, there is there is no good data that's going to tell us actually how the, the, the graduates' careers and salaries evolve um, over the long term. And, and I think the, the assumptions in this are flawed. So to me, it's more useful to look at the actual data that is reliable, which is where people are going when they graduate from the school, which employers they're going to, um, how much they're making, if, if that's something that, that you know, is, is critical to you and see whether, you know, people are going into positions that, that really excite you and, and it's going to enable you to make a, to land the type of job that you're looking for post-MBA. So I think those career statistics are much more useful for decision-making purposes than this, this particular study. True. I mean, the other thing here is, you know, can you really say that if you get a Wharton degree, your lifetime earnings are going to be in excess of three million uh, more than they would otherwise be? You know, I think an MBA, even for an elite institution, gives you an advantage right out of the gate, and maybe a lifetime advantage in the sense that you have a networking, a group of networking colleagues that you can uh, confer with who might see opportunities and bring them to your attention, but. There comes a point in everyone's career where where you went to school really doesn't matter. What matters is what you deliver at work, what your performance is. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and that is almost not accounted for at all here because it can't be, right? It's an intangible thing that can't really be measured. Now, you might say that the selectivity process at these at really good Ivy League and uh, prestige schools is such that they can identify people early who have the most potential and are probably more ambitious and more willing to work really hard to earn these large sums of money. And that, I think there's definitely some truth in that. Because as I was mentioning before, he does seem to show that if you go to an elite institution, you're going you're gonna to do better than if you don't. So his study overall found that while 8% of master's degrees overall offer a return above 1 million, that share rises to 41% for people who go to Ivy League or comparable universities. 
So clearly, um, brand seems to matter, or maybe it's the selection process. Maybe it's people like Caroline at NCOD making so sure that when she was uh, head of uh, admissions, she only entered people who she really believed had the great potential to have uh, a successful life and a successful professional life and a career. So there is that as well. So, but, okay, I'm going to just say it's fun to look at this and, and there may be some value here in, in saying, hey, in setting expectations. So if in fact you go to a second tier or third tier school and you look at the numbers and they're, you know, uh, well below what the numbers are for a top 25 or top 50 school, I think that's probably helpful for you to know um, that in fact, overall, not necessarily for you, the return may not be nearly as high. Uh, last words on this, Maria? Uh, a couple. So first of all, as you were saying a second ago, I think correl- there's a difference between correlation versus causality, right? Yes. I think that the the reason that, the, you know, as we've said before, the reason that these, the elite schools, even with the law school results, right? Oh, Columbia, Harvard, they're the highest pay. Well, you know, they probably accepted the strongest students in the beginning of the pipeline. And so those people then when they graduate, they work really hard and they grasp things more quickly or whatever it is that you need to be to be a good lawyer. So I think just don't don't confuse correlation with causality. And also my husband and I were sort of laughing at the, you know, because if you look at the chart, it has, you know, dentistry, but then it has several law schools. Like at age 45, you're making a lot of money if you went to Columbia Law School or Harvard Law School. And we were laughing and it's like, yeah, but then you'd have to be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Because <laughs> <laughs> to be able to admit to be making that level of money in law and to be having to do it, you just the work. It's not just the hours of work. I just I think the work is also itself pretty tedious or yeah, soul-sucking. the numbing nature of the work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I am fine. I, I, I'm fine with not looking at people, drilling holes in people's mouths and, you know, giving them fake teeth and not being a lawyer at Cravath at age 45. Like I'm good. Suing people and trying to take advantage of of situations and technicalities. Yes. (laughs) Caroline, last words. Well, I I think it is a very good point that, that, that you don't have to go to Harvard or Stanford or Wharton to do well in life. Right. And I don't know if any studies have been done um, looking at business schools, um, but certainly there've been studies done looking at um, college graduates and for example, people who were admitted to Ivy League schools but chose not to go there and went to other schools. And what those studies have shown is that it's not necessarily going to that school that that drives your future career success and salary. It's who you are as an individual, right? And I, you know, I think they say that to to the to the class, you know, coming in at, at, at Harvard that that you would be successful in life regardless, right? They're well aware of the fact that they're picking people who are going to be going to achieve great things regardless of the school. So I do think people over-index the impact of going to a top undergraduate school and and sometimes, um, you know, also the case with with the graduate school. But you know, nevertheless, I think there's a lot of value in the options that it gives you and, 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 and being able to choose your career path and define your future in a way that you might not be, a, be able to if you hadn't gone to business school and have all those 
opportunities that suddenly open up for you. So to me, it's more about, um, you know, being able to define your um, your own version of, of success and being able to access opportunities and, and open doors that might otherwise have been closed rather than necessarily making vast amounts of money. Well said. Well, there you have it. So if you want to uh, check out this article and see how much your MBA is supposedly valued at, go to Poets and Quants. You'll see calculating the value of your MBA is a Wharton MBA really worth $3.2 million. Whether you think it's just total BS or not, it's fun reading. <laughs> Maria and Caroline, thank you once again for a great discussion. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You've been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast. Oh, 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 oh,